Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with two amazing individuals, Evan Kuo, co-founder and CEO of Ampleforth, and Manny Rincon Cruz, a researcher at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, where he serves as the executive director of the History Working Group. He is also co-author of the Ampleforth White Paper and remains an advisor to the team. The Ampleforth story is a complicated one. Evan and Manny join me on the show to set the record straight and to clarify misconceptions. And no, Ampleforth is not a stablecoin. In fact, as you'll soon learn, Ample is a long-term competitor to Bitcoin. Ample is an adaptive base money that improves upon the limitations of traditional hard monies such as silver and gold, with a novel monetary policy design that introduces supply elasticity, Ample strives to be a new synthetic elastic commodity. Evan and Manny explain how Ample aims to be a building block for the decentralized financial ecosystem, why it can be used as a unit of account for debt denomination, and what this all means for the crypto lending markets. If what I just said made no sense, Tune in and listen to the experts explain. This is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had to date, and I have no doubt you'll have a few new takeaways today. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Evan and Manny, thank you both so much for joining me on Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having us as well. We're big fans. It's been nearly two years since the launch of the Ample token. Uh, Ampleforth has since become a household name and also at the center of many debates within the crypto circle about what should the new form of money look like. And I promise to do a deep dive into this question today with you both. But Evan, to kick things off on a fun note, one thing that I love learning about is your former venture as an artisan pizza maker. A few listening in today probably know that you were involved in the then $40 billion U.S. pizza market, running a vertically integrated pizza maker and delivery service. Uh, you started Pythagoras Pizza back in 2015. And about two years in, you decided to experiment with tokenizing regional B2C franchising businesses, including your own company. So it seems like your interest in tokenization, you know, fair governance and incentive alignment found its roots in the pizza market. Is that fair to say? Yes, that is fair to say. I did run a startup called Pythagoras Pizza and it was, as you said, vertically integrated high speed delivery. I know it's very snow crash, <laughs> um, but there was a moment uh, we did have this virtual currency even in that application called Gons. And it was such that um, after you ordered a certain number of pizzas, you would each time you ordered, you would accrue these gons and they could be, you know, they were spendable. They were redeemable essentially for pizzas. And at some point, we experimented and thought about the idea of kind of tokenizing this currency to make it kind of more broadly fungible. Um, and I came to this conclusion, ultimately, that uh, utility tokens made no sense and started doing kind of more of a deep dive into what, what sort of new monies could be created and what sort of new monies should be created and eventually kind of transitioned into creating just the currency. So it's almost like we had this consumer business and then we got curious about a virtual currency 
Uh, and then we really just kept zooming in until all that was left was a currency and created a new business along the way. Manny, I know you're a big financial history buff, but you also studied mathematics in university. Probably it's fair to assume you're more or less an interdisciplinary guy. What's something about your background and interests that, you know, perhaps Evan doesn't even know that you can share with us today? Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I think Evan knows almost everything about me. Uh, oh, I know exactly. So I think when I was growing up, you know, I moved to the United States from Mexico with my family. And so one of the areas that I excelled in was mathematics. It was just sort of a natural thing to do. But I, I also became fascinated with biology and botany. So for the longest time, I thought I was going to go to the Monterey Institute to study marine biology. That was sort of the dream. And the only reason that that changed is I ended up uh, at Stanford at the uh, age of 15. They, they had this program, which has been discontinued which was to introduce teenagers to philosophy. So they would get these uh, philosophy professors from Harvard, Princeton, and so on, uh, and teach high school kids philosophy. And so it was that that sort of then derailed me uh, in some ways. So when I, when I got to university, I, I tried being a philosopher, but I failed. I did really badly in most of my philosophy classes. It was really only in uh, logic, which is uh, at Harvard is a subset of, of philosophy, that I truly found something that I that I was sort of doing well. So I kind of just ended up focusing on mathematical logic. That's kind of how that ended up happening. So you traded in California for Boston, huh? Big mistake. No, I regret it to this day because I got into both. And uh, my sister went to Stanford and she was always so happy. And so I, I sort of knew at that moment that I had made a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll ask this next question to you both because I think this is really what frames the Ample Forth story, but also your perspectives as well. So when did your fascination with money really materialize? And who are some of your biggest influences when it comes to economic theory? Evan, perhaps I can start with you. Wow. I guess for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated, not, not with money, but with this idea of encoding a set of values into something that can live beyond yourself. Um, something not unlike a religion or philosophy. Um, and then as I kind of grew up and thought more and more about money, I came to believe that money itself was kind of part of this intersubjective reality and religion or philosophy. Um, but it was also very functional and very real. Um, but really when it comes to economic theory, it began with Hayek. So I remember Joey Krug was the first to kind of ask me to read The Denationalization of Money by Friedrich Hayek, which kind of gave cryptocurrencies almost an ethos, um, the idea that we should have competing denationalized currencies and what, what that might look like and how that might benefit us was very compelling and very complete. It kind of gave Bitcoin a purpose in my view. Um, but then as I met Manny and started learning more and more, I became increasingly interested in, in kind of the earlier works of Milton Friedman, specifically some of his writing on commodity reserve currencies. And then, of course, Keynes, uh, just the underpinning of, of what we see today. Yeah, those are the three big ones for me. The answer for that, in my case, is actually two very different sets of people. Sometime when I was in college, I ended up making a mentor who, it, as it turned out, I later found out was a, one of the very senior managing directors at Deutsche Bank. So he really 
catalyzed my interest in finance because he tried to get me to do sort of internships at some hedge funds. And I ended up, you know, doing investment banking later for a bit. And then the other sort of big influence in getting me to really look into financial history was Neil Ferguson, who it's, it's been a great privilege having him as a, as a, as a mentor and, and professor for, for many, many years. In terms of economic theory, I mean, the way that I think about economic theory is really through the lens of economic history. So there's two names that, to me, made a big difference. One is uh, Ken Pomeranz. Um, so he wrote a book about globalization, which a lot of people know. But I, I think, for me, his most important book was The Great Divergence, which was about explaining why, um, you know, sort of Europe, the Industrial Revolution happened in Europe versus any other part of the world, in particular, why not in China. And then, of course, uh, Douglas North, whose work on that area has also been deeply influential. And the reason that their works have really resonated with me is that I also have this kind of scientific view of history in the sense that you sort of take a systems level approach to thinking about societies and economic change. You grant up front that it's stochastic in nature, right? It's randomness dominates a lot of things, right? The steam engine happened in England because it just so happened that English coal mines flood. And so, you know, that provided a very good use case for a very inefficient steam engine to pump out the water and then allowed, you know, from there to then refine the engine into other use cases in the economy. So that was fundamentally random, but the structure of society, both in terms of the social institutions and the financial institutions, are really the big filters that allow these moments of fortuitous chance to really blossom into either a financial revolution or an economic one. So, yeah, I would say those those have been sort of the two figures that I really look up to, I think, in terms of like the books that they've written. So when we think about mental models within economics or specifically, you know, on this concept of money, we can't really frame these mental models without talking about uh, the principles of money, right, which has obviously a very storied history and various economic thinkers will uh, come at this question from a different angle. But a big reason why we are all in crypto now is because we realize that at some point in time, the principles of money have been warped, right? And some might even say have uh, gone awry over the past few decades with the rise of you know, central bank governance and dominance over monetary policy. Perhaps one of you can talk to sort of what went wrong along the way. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you mentioned this. I think that I first kind of encountered this problem. I was working on a piece called Central Banks, a Bad Influence on Decentralized Finance. And that's because I had this intuition that a lot of the people working in cryptocurrencies today were trying to mimic central banks and recreate them in a decentralized context. Whereas what we were trying to do was trying to just extend the functionality of a commodity money like Bitcoin. They're two very different approaches. And what I came to realize is that these central banks have very clear mandates and they also really have the ability to kind of print money with, with sovereign authority. Um, and, and it's almost as though the systems that exist today in the central banking context are, have become very, very good at bailing itself out and bailing other industries out because, well, inevitably, these free market incentives fail to uphold things like pegs or basically social objectives, however agreed upon those objectives may be. 
And we see that kind of starting to happen a lot in the DeFi space, specifically with some of these bond-based tokens. And I'm sure Manny can talk a lot more about it. But then as I kind of kept pulling, I realized, well, the history of money is littered with failed pegs. I think the the focus so much on a pegged uh, stablecoin is, is really comes from a misreading, I think, of of the historical evidence um, in, in a lot of ways and a misunderstanding of what a stablecoin really does and kind of the evolution of the monetary system, largely speaking. As you well know, I, I've, I've talked about this monetary trilemma before, you know, about having adaptive supply, durable value, and, and a stable peg and kind of clarifying that historically, historical monies have never been able to fulfill more than two of these functions at a time. And the fundamental issue with a pegged currency is that it, it has severe limitations for adapting supply to the demand for, for money. And so in a true pegged system, right, like the currencies that the United States helped set up at the turn of the 20th century in, say, Puerto Rico or the Philippines, you know, these were currency boards and they were backed one-to-one with either gold or, or dollars, right? And so this means that the supply of the currency itself, right, cannot adapt to the local demand for it because it, by definition, it is a function of the reserves that, that are there. So the real issue is that, you know, a lot of these products out there, they think that they can hold a peg without doing this trade-off, uh, without really giving up adaptive supply. Uh, and, and so the, the, the classic error in, in this case is, is to forget that historically, Peg currencies don't last quite long, right? So, mm. the in the era of the gold standard, right, all currencies became convertible to gold, and that was a that was you know a worthwhile trade off because it was the first era of globalization, and the the benefits from trade were were massive at that point. Um, but the 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 downside, the trade off, was that you had basically with the gold peg, you had also created these bonds between economies, right? So these are the in some ways, a, a little bit, you know, a liberal use of the golden fetters analogy, right? So if, if your economy was growing faster faster than sort of its peers, you, you had to throttle it, right? You had to suffer depressions. And these were politically acceptable in the 19th or 18th century. Um, but after World War II, I mean, these are kind of unacceptable, right? Most of our politicians live to avoid a recession. Um, and so these are trade-offs that are no longer possible today. Um, and I think, you know, I, th- I think a lot of these projects just kind of miss it, right? They, they sort of think about open market operations that central banks use. And it's truly like they don't understand what these are for. I mean, open market operations are primarily for anchoring interest rates, at, right? They're not there to modulate the supply of money. And to hold a peg. I mean, that's not why they're used. So I think it's it's a total misunderstanding of both how currency and monetary policy work today and historically how the, it has evolved. Evan, one way you approach the question of how do we create a better money is, you know, what can we improve about precious metals, right? The sort of base money that you just talked about. And so instead of the usual question, uh, many of us in crypto ask, right, we might be from traditional finance or even outside the financial industry altogether, um, and that is, you know, what is wrong with the dollar? Why is it better 
to form this sort of mental model, approach this big question anchored on the base money problem as opposed to the dollar problem? Well, to me, I think that really things like the dollar, um, fiat currencies, like I said earlier, they have sovereign money printing authority and they're designed to be very good at bailing economies out. They can force you to pay your taxes um, in the sovereign currency, right? Whereas commodity monies like gold and silver, they're just natural resources. They're naturally politically independent. They're naturally scarce. Uh, and they have very kind of well-known economic functions that stand in concert with these central bank currencies. And I think it became very natural to see what was happening here was that the Bitcoin protocol had um, developed the ability to create scarcity in a purely digital context. And in doing so, it had succeeded in creating um, what can be called a digital gold or something very similar to a digital gold. The next natural question to ask for me would be like, well, how can we do better than digital gold? Because we understand the limitations of gold as a building block. We started to go down that path uh, rather than the path of recreating a central bank in a decentralized context, which seemed misappropriated, just felt like putting a, a square peg in a circular hole. So yeah, dovetailing on what you just said there, when you started to think about what Ample would look like, right? The Ample token you kind of ask two questions to yourself. One might be a bit more technical, which is how can we create a non-dilutive digital asset with a different movement pattern? And I would love for you to break that down for us. But the second one is more broad, I would say, in nature, which is can we create a better building block for the financial ecosystem? So looking at where Ample Forth is today, you know, about two years in since the launch of the Ample token, how do you think Ample stacks up to some of these initial goals you had in mind back in 2018? Yeah, I mean, thanks so much for unearthing those initial questions because a lot of people don't even understand the problem that we were seeking to solve. And really quickly, I think Ample is holding up very well to those initial goals, but I'd like to kind of unpack them a little bit. You were right to say that we asked exactly two questions. One is very kind of practical. It's about diversification. And the other is more ideological. It's more long-term. It's about base monies. It's about building blocks. And really, these questions dovetailed from two distinct academic papers that we were looking at. The first question, like the practical near-term question, was can we create a digital asset with a different movement pattern? And ultimately, that was a question about diversification. That dovetailed from a paper called Risks and Returns of Cryptocurrency by Lou and Savinsky in 2018. And uh, we found that as a working paper in the National Bureau of Economic Research. But really, in a nutshell, um, the paper said that Bitcoin ought to be put into investment portfolios because it has very little risk exposure to traditional macro indicators of consumption and production. It's a diversifying agent. We noted at the time, however, that although today's digital currencies on the whole have little exposure to traditional markets, they are within the set of digital currencies hyper-correlated with one another. That is to say, many of these currencies, nearly all of them, move in perfect lockstep with Bitcoin. So we asked a question, which was, can we create a non-dilutive digital asset with a different movement pattern? Because if so, well, that would suggest that we could diversify risk to further add diversity to the ecosystem. And that would be valuable for the same reasons Bitcoin is, is kind of pragmatically valuable today. 
Now, the second question you alluded to is, is kind of broader and more ideological. The ideological long-term question that we asked was, can we create a better building block for the financial ecosystem? And this is very much a question of fixed versus elastic supply, and it dovetailed from a paper titled Synthetic Commodity Money by George Selgin, which we found, or Manny actually directed me to, in the Journal of Financial Stability. And what's interesting about this paper is, is Selgin, who's at the Cato Institute, was investigating the use of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin for monetary reform. And he noted that Bitcoin had some qualities of a commodity money in that it was absolutely scarce, but it also had some qualities of fiat money in that it had no non-monetary utility. It couldn't be consumed. You couldn't eat it. You can't build your house out of it. In that way, it was much more like fiat money. And it lived at kind of the intersection of the two. And, and he also noticed that there was no classification of such monies to date. And so he kind of termed a new classification, a synthetic commodity money. He also noted that Bitcoin has a fixed supply and therefore has the same building block limitations as, as a gold. Um, that is to say, it can't modulate its supply to offset changes in demand. And therefore, anything denominated in Bitcoin or gold would also be vulnerable to these sorts of shocks and perturbations in, in demand. Uh, but he asked in that paper, well, isn't it possible for us to create a synthetic commodity money kind of like Bitcoin, except for one that has an elastic supply rather than a fixed supply? Because such a thing might make for a much better base money. Uh, and so we asked that very question, can we create a variation of Bitcoin that has elastic supply rather than fixed supply? Because if so, we could make a much better building block for a new alternative financial ecosystem. And yeah, just taking it back to your original question of like, how, how is it stacking up um, from the movement pattern side? Our hypothesis has largely proven to be correct. We did a follow-up study with Gauntlet Research on this, and it's very kind of clear assets like Ample are less correlated with Bitcoin than other assets, other digital assets of today. And that simulation was done last year, right? Around Q3 or Q4? Yes, around there. Does the simulation, which is more or less, you know, a snapshot of one point in time, right? Do you think that still holds given the rip in the market that we've seen in both Bitcoin and Ethereum since? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's no way to say that that simulation in particular will hold moving forward, but the correlation analysis that they did is is kind of something that we can follow up with kind of day over day. And we actually have kind of a correlation matrix on our dashboard. And also we have, you know, more recent kind of third party verification. We're kind of just always looking at it. And it, it's kind of shown that Ample continues to be less correlated with Bitcoin than other digital currencies. And so it's kind of achieving that goal successfully. Now, there might come a time when it fails to achieve that goal. But I think that for the foreseeable future, it'll just kind of move differently. And from the building block perspective, I would say that we've achieved our goal in that, you know, for the most part, um, Ample is counter cyclical and, you know, price has always kind of returned to its target. When it was too high, it came back down, increasing the circulating supply along the way. And when it was um, too low, price came back up, reducing the circulating supply along the way. And yeah, ultimately, we've created an unbreakable asset like Bitcoin that can be used for contract denomination. You packed a lot in there, and I want to put a pin on the last two comments that 
you made because we're going to get to that right now. When we look at the story of Ampleforth, I feel like there's been this struggle against or alongside this narrative of being a stablecoin, right? There's this struggle to either rebrand or kind of recreate what exactly the Ample token is about. But nonetheless, when we go back the past one and a half years, Ampleforth has been grouped within this category of algorithmic stablecoins. And Manny, you were quoted in a recent Cointelegraph article um, that talks through just how Ampleforth is different from uh, stablecoins such as BASED or uh, ESD, which is empty set dollar, uh, or DSD, which is dynamic set dollar, and some other tokens as well. Uh, but the main takeaway from this article, when we try to think about these sort of categories of coins, is that you can group them in two. One is the rebasing category, which Ample falls under, and the other is the coupon-based mint and burn category, which some of the other tokens, such as empty set dollar and dynamic set dollar, fall under. So, Manny, can you give us some pros and cons for these two different categories, perhaps starting with rebasing coins? Yeah, absolutely. I think I would actually say there's there's three sort of categories of money, right? If you think about the functional kind of properties of of money, as I mentioned earlier, one is is really fiat, right, where the supply is adaptive to demand, and where the total value of the stock itself remains constant over time. And so, you know, this is a sort of corollary of monetary thinking, right, where you might print more money as it were, but if the if the real economy has not changed, then the total value of the stock of money remains unchanged. The second one is what you would call your fully collateralized coins, right? The ones that have both a stable peg and stable value across time. Uh, USDC, Tether, I think are perfect examples. And then you have this kind of third category, which historically is quite rare, which has uh, an adaptive supply. So, you know, you get more of it when there's more demand for it and where the value of a single unit of this money remains constant in value across time. However, the total stock of it might change. And so the, the total value of the total stock of this stuff changes over time. Um, and so the, the, this, this kind of coupon-based model um, it is basically a fiat currency that is trying to kind of achieve a peg through uh, kind of changing dynamics in, in the foreign exchange market. Um, and, you know, we, we really should think about these assets as um, currencies, right? And so their value relationship with other cryptocurrencies is really properly thought of as a, as a exchange rate. And, um, you know, there's many theoretical results that show that these things are like almost impossible to predict. Um, the, the main downside of this fiat model where you then use coupons to try to manipulate the exchange rate is that the supply of these things, right, because they, they try to mint more of it when the exchange rate is, quote unquote, too high. The problem is that the supply gets anchored at the, the highest watermark for the exchange rate. And the protocols themselves don't have a way of actually forcing a reduction in the supply of their currency. And so, you know, the, the coupons are supposed to be kind of this voluntary inducement uh, to get people to lock up their funds for a certain period of time. The issue with that is that the rewards for locking things up 
are in that native currency itself. So in some ways, you're kind of creating a little bit of deflation now with the promise of even greater inflation later. Um, and, and, you know, as, as, as Tom Sargent has shown in his, you know, four great inflations kind of uh, articles, um, sort of a couple decades ago about adaptive rational expectations and the relationship to inflation is if people expect inflation, then you're going to get inflation, right? And so any rational market player today knows that when they're locking their bond, you know, their, their coins now in exchange for these interest rates, they know that the value of everything will be inflated away in the future. So there's kind of this increase in velocity to these uh, cycles. And so the, the, the real value of this currency kind of just becomes more and more unstable over time. Ample has this single token rebasing model that is uh, somewhat different from this multi-token model that um, ESD and DSD take. So what are some of the advantages of operating on this one token model, right? The, the simplicity of this model, I feel like, is at the center of, of a few debates, right? Some say it's great. Some say it's not so great. It's more of a bug, not a feature. Uh, so what do you think about that? Well, so I actually think financial innovation happens in, in a number of ways, right? It can, you can imagine a two-by-two two matrix um, where you can either change the financial stack, right? So the set of financial instruments that kind of build upon each other, or you can change the base money itself, right? So, you know, 1973, when we went off gold, the financial stack remained unchanged, but we swapped out gold for basically fiat dollars. Um, if you think about 1944, right, the Bretton Woods Agreement, the base money remained kind of gold-based, uh, specie-based, right? So the base money remained unchanged, but the, the stack itself changed, right? Because we got a whole bunch of uh, new institutions. Um, if you think about this historical framework, it makes sense that you would want to keep it as simple and small and robust as possible, right? You want, you know, elastic supply is in and of itself kind of a swapping out of the base money, right? So then the instruments that are built on the stack will actually change in performance. And so for me, that was compelling enough for Ample to be built. What I think is the downside of this multiple token model, right? And we should be clear that one token is meant to be quote unquote money and the other ones are meant to be kind of financial instruments, right? Bonds. Is that, you know, they, they kind of bring in kind of useless complexity and tying the two things together. Um, and so they're attempting kind of a partial swap out of the stack and a partial swap out of the base money. Uh, and they really don't achieve either. So I think it's too much complexity, right? In a highly volatile environment, it's kind of a a thing that survives in perfect market conditions, but with volatility, it, it tends to die out. Yeah, let's dig deeper in the Ample token design. There was a Deribits Insight article that uh, talked about and analyzed various tokens, including Ample. And I'll just quote something that this research article wrote, which is, Ample token is a speculative vehicle, one that rewards holders with inflation, when demand is high and forces holders to be debt financiers when demand is low. And as such, it is difficult to see how Ample can both serve this speculative purpose and achieve the stability that is the sine qua non of stablecoins, right? To this point, it's been said that Ample for speculative nature is actually an advantage, and that is being a unit of account 
denominating contracts that are stable in value. Um, so Evan, can you talk to the various points that's sort of packed into that one uh, sentence that I mentioned uh, from this Darabitz article and talk through what are some of the goals of Ample? Is it in fact to achieve this stability when really Ample Forth isn't a stable coin? Can you clarify that and also talk about the stable contracts utility of Ample and why this is important in getting to the goal that Ampleforth hopes to achieve in being used to denominate debt contracts, which we'll talk about just a little bit later. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention again. And I, I, I think that you kind of framed it generally correctly, which is we need to at least ask whether the goal of the Ample token is to be a stable coin if one is going to criticize it for not being a stable coin. And you know, just uh, I would I think that it's pretty clear to anybody that looks at any of our historical resources from the beginning to the end that there is no intention for the ample to be a, a stable coin. Um, our white paper titled "A New Synthetic Commodity" outlines a movement pattern, a step function like movement pattern, and um, we literally drew this movement pattern out. It's kind of what the ample market cap movement pattern looks like, and nobody could mistake what we had drawn for stability. <laughs> but, but you know, I do think it's worth kind of at least wondering why there's such confusion. Um, I think that there might just be this kind of, and why, why so much controversy? I think there just might be a huge gap between how economists think, these top-down thinkers think, and, and how kind of engineers, bottom-up building block people think. And maybe it's the case that the engineer looks at the ample protocol decides not to read any of the context and says, well, there's a price target. So the goal must be to eliminate volatility. How could it be succeeding at that goal if the supply is just as volatile as the price would have been? Uh, and perhaps like an economist looks at this and says, well, it's a lot like Bitcoin, except for it can be used for contract denomination. It could be used as a unit of account. That's strictly better. It's no more volatile than Bitcoin, except it can be used in contracts. And so I think that is really kind of a pain to deal with just how intuitively sensible it seems to certain people and, and how intuitively nonsensical it seems to others. But really the Apple before protocol is, is very simple. It just translates the volatility of demand from the price per Apple to the quantity of Apples in user wallets, right? Each Apple is meant to have the value or the exchange rate of a 2019 dollar. But the number of amples in your wallet can increase or decrease based on demand. It doesn't really conceal any risks. If you think of it like Bitcoin, it's entirely based on a set of rules. It's, it's algorithmic, non-collateralized. Right? Like Bitcoin, its holders can gain or lose value based on market forces, as it should be. But unlike Bitcoin, Ample can be used to denominate stable contracts. That's to say, like for example, you have if you had a car loan, uh, it's like a three-year contract and you denominated in, in Bitcoin at the beginning of this year, well, you might be on the hook for a lot more money than you thought because you know Bitcoin went from 3000 to 60000 in, in inside of one year, right? Um, you would never want to denominate a car loan contract in a currency like Bitcoin. But with Ample, um, even though it hasn't stabilized, right, you, um, you could denominate a contract of that sort in that way because it has this cyclical price. Um, even even if a holder of Ample were to 10x their holdings or 100x their holdings, 
these contracts that are denominated in amples can remain stable. And, and that's what makes it a more useful building block for an alternative financial ecosystem than an asset like Bitcoin. Yet, it is pretty much as hardy as a Bitcoin, right? It can't break. So what Manny described earlier was the fragility of, of these systems that rely on kind of coupons or, or conflate money and financial instrument or rely on centralized custodians like USDC or Tether. So what is a good comparison then to Ample, right? If someone were to just give you a clean slate, you know, say this is way back 2019 at the launch of Ample and someone were to say, who is your so-called competitor? What would that competitor be or who would it be? It's, it's a good question. I mean, I think we think of Ample as being kind of just like Bitcoin, except for it being, can be used in contracts. So, I mean, it is unbreakable like Bitcoin, but it's useful in contracts like a stablecoin. So, I mean, that's kind of how I think of it. But I would, I would position it as more a long-term competitor to Bitcoin than to the stablecoins of today, because... I mean, really, Bitcoin is valuable because of its censorship-resistant qualities and its non-dilutive nature. And, and that's really why Ample would be valuable as well, because of its censorship-resistant qualities and its non-dilutive na- nature. It just so happens that we can use Ample as a building block for a more sophisticated financial ecosystem, because you can denominate stable contracts with it. I would say um, there's a historical kind of analogy which exists only in writings. There's a very famous economist named James Buchanan. And in the 50s, he was thinking about the Bretton Woods system, right? Where the dollar is kind of the, the base money of this, the financial stack of commercial banking, bond markets, equity markets, and so on. And he was pondering the question of what a more perfect money would look like. And his answer was, uh, and you know, this is when computers were just starting to get going. Silicon Valley was sort of in infancy. Um, He hypothesized that you could create, um, you know, you would put databases in all the banks, right? And you would create an electronic money. And that money, the supply of that money would be pro rata inflated or deflated according to economic indicators, right, for the demand of money. And so you would have this algorithm run out of a supercomputer. And, you know, he says, and then, of course, the trick is, that the computer's password protected and you destroy the keys so that it can never be changed, right? So in some ways, if you think about it, this really encapsulates both the concept of sort of prorata distributive rebasing, which is at the heart of Ample. It also has the kind of rules-based kind of concept at its core. And it also has this idea of basically censorship resistance, right? You eliminate the access to the supercomputer so that no one, no monetary authority can break actually the rules that control the expansion and contraction of the money supply. So I would say that is probably the analogy for for Ample. Yeah, that's very interesting. Let's go down further on this path of what Evan talked about earlier, which is, you know, why Ample is useful for debt denomination. And Evan, you said in the past that debt-based monies always face a liquidity crisis at some point or at many points in their lifetime and are designed to be bailed out by the sovereign monetary authorities uh, whom they are governed by. Uh, But when it comes to DeFi, you believe that the rise of dollars in decentralized finance is discouraging from a philosophical perspective in that debt is expensive, but easier to get. Um, But practically speaking, I think 
you know, debt that is easy to get can also be considered quote unquote cheap debt, right? Meaning that debt is more easily accessible via more efficient lending markets. And that is what DeFi is giving rise to. So how has the evolution of the lend borrow markets in DeFi influence your perspective on the way that debt markets are supposed to work? Yeah, there was a lot captured in that question. I, I would say, um, first and foremost, I kind of stand by my statements um, about it being disconcerting that the US dollar and you know dollar collateralized cryptocurrencies like USDC are kind of the linchpin of this decentralized financial ecosystem. And, and the reason I believe that's the case, or the reason I find it disconcerting, is that the whole point of the decentralized finance movement is to create an alternative financial ecosystem that is beyond the reach of politics, beyond political tampering. And and this kind of use of dollars, as it were, as the underpinning of this new financial ecosystem makes it not so new. Um, we have kind of open banking APIs, and we've seen these things in, like in India and and so on and so forth. But if they're not censorship resistant, then they don't really kind of compete with centralized um, dollars or money, um, and they don't kind of push the system as a whole to evolve. But yeah, you're, to your point about um, the evolution of, of debt in in the cryptocurrency markets, that's a really good question. I, I used to really wonder, like, you know, why would anybody um, pay such high interest rates and 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 cough up so much collateral? to borrow money. You know, it doesn't make sense when debt is cheap in general. Um, and I think the reasons for that are mostly speculative today. So, you know, the, a lot of the borrowing that's going on right now. So a lot of the lending is because people who are holding cryptocurrencies want to generate passive income on it. They don't want to exit their, their cryptocurrency position. And a lot of the borrowing is kind of taking advantage of the composability and modularity of these tokens. Like when you borrow a coin, you can kind of use that as an input to another system and kind of optimize that and feed it back into itself to generate money. So I think a lot of the behavior is mostly speculative, which is fine because that speculative activity is bootstrapping um, this kind of more long-term ideological marketplace through which it can be easy for anybody to access debt and credit. And I think that's cool. But I do think that for Ample, it's a really big deal, in our opinion, to get on a lending platform and to start to see use in, in denomination in that way. Because in, in some ways, you could say that Ample will be the, the first kind of non-collateralized asset that um, you could reasonably want to borrow. So um, right now, most of the borrow activity um, on platforms like Compound and Aave is in stablecoins. And, and that's for good reason. It's because you'll know what your debt obligation is. If you borrow it, um, you'll know what it costs roughly to pay off. On the other hand, if I'm, I'm borrowing a more volatile asset or fixed or kind of a floating price asset like ETH, I'm not really sure what my debt obligation is. And so I'd rather just borrow USDC mm-hmm. or USDT or even die. Now, Ample has a cyclical price. And so it gets it's it's kind of distinct from USDT in that it hovers above and below a dollar, but it's not really tightly around the dollar, at least not right now. And this is interesting because it might actually be profitable for people to borrow Ample when it's trading at above a dollar, because they'll know that one day they'll be able to pay back their debt obligation at a dollar or maybe even below a dollar. 
So it would be, make a lot of sense for people to borrow Ample when it's trading at $1.50, sell it, and then buy it back and pay off that debt obligation when Ample price restores to a dollar. Or, or even if Ample dips below a dollar, you might want to buy some and pay off your debt obligation there because it's practical. And so there's this kind of speculative reason to, to use Ample in these debt platforms, but the very use of Ample in that way um, allows it to start to benefit from the stickiness of contracts. If you know that borrowing Ample at greater a dollar than, and paying back your debt obligations when Ample is under a dollar is profitable, then the act of doing that starts to kind of cause the Ample price to trade closer to a dollar, which ultimately propagates into ample balances becoming a little bit more shock absorbent, a little bit more stable, maybe not completely stable, but the fact that ample can be used in contract denomination means there's some probability that it will be used in contract denomination and its use in contract denomination will actually kind of um, allow the, the asset to take, take advantage of that stickiness. So it's cool. Yeah. Let me press into that a bit. So theoretically, Let's say I'm a borrower. Um, I borrowed 100 amples, 100 units of amples at $1 each. I go to the market and I sell amples to get cash because let's say I need yep. to pay off something. But now what if at expiry of my loan, ample is at, let's just call it $5, okay? And you know I've already sold my ample, so I'm effectively short ample as the borrower, right? But my obligation is I have to, pay, um, you know, $5, let's say, to buy back Ample uh, in order to pay back the loan so that I don't default. So what happens there in the case that it kind of, the price of Ample falls and shoots way out of the band that it's usually uh, moving within? What happens to me as the borrower? Well, in that case, you'd be um, in a bit of trouble, right? So if there was a fixed expiry and Ample just happened to shoot out of its price range at that particular moment and you needed to close your debt position, it would be more expensive for you to close that debt position than you expected and you could be in trouble. Um, but really, in practice, most of this is you know perpetuals, right, where you can close out your position at any time. Um, so it wouldn't be necessarily a fixed expiry you would be able to wait it out and eventually Ample would restore price to its target. Or perhaps in the real world, most likely there will be kind of a settlement window. Um, and really we've seen Ample leave its target uh, for some time here and there, but not for extended periods of time. So it would be you know, unusual for it to remain outside of its ban for more than like one or two months. Now, on the other hand, let's just say you did this with Bitcoin. Bitcoin was worth a dollar when you borrowed it, borrowed a thousand Bitcoin, you sold it for cash, bought some stuff, um, and all of a sudden the price of Bitcoin went to $10. There's no expiry, so you could theoretically like wait forever, but it never goes back to a dollar. And instead of, you know, instead it just goes to like a thousand dollars, and then it goes to like $10,000, right? You might face this un intractable problem where like if I had denominated my home loan in Bitcoin, you know, let's just say 10 years ago, it's a $2 million home. Like by now I'd be on the hook for something like $50 billion, you know? So um, you and I would not be talking today if uh, yeah. that were the case. <laughs> you would have been liquidated, you know, the, the, you know, the, the bondsmen would have come after you, the bounty hunters would have come after you. But yeah, it's just, uh, it really is a much better situation, all else being equal than floating price tokens. And again, this is, this is a, 
a asset that's non-collateralized. It's, it's virtually unbreakable and it can be used for this kind of contract denomination and it soon will be. So we're excited you know, about getting on some of these larger lending platforms in the very near future. And I think people will start to see viscerally the difference with Ample, both from a speculative near-term kind of perspective and, and also from a, an ideological perspective, just to know that a non-collateral asset can reasonably use, be used in a lending platform, you know, it's going to feel a little bit different and, and to have an economic reason to do that in the near term, you know, it's going to be a big deal. Yeah. So most of these loans that you're talking about tend to be open term loans. Then I guess if you look at it from the other perspective um, or the other you know side of this equation, right, we just talked about the borrower's mindset. If we talk about the lender's mindset, how should a lender think about uh, this sort of runaway price risk, right? I know you've said that the price doesn't really fall outside of this band for any more than a couple months, but in a different market cycle, it could, right? Um, so hypothetically speaking, uh, there is still this price risk. So what is the incentive of the lender to lend out amples um, and, and how should they think about their counterparty risk to the borrower? Yeah, I mean, I think it's people get a different kind of risk reward profile by lending in general. They're kind of, you know, trading some of that maximum exposure to the volatility of ample price and balance for, you know, a, a reduced amount of exposure combined with kind of some sort of fixed income, right? So it just kind of shakes up the risk profile a little bit. Kind of like if you were to lend out Bitcoin, the main motivation would be like, you're not planning on selling your Bitcoin. You're not planning on selling your ETH. You want to generate some passive income. You're, you know, willing to lend some of it out. I think that's how most kind of lenders think about um, cryptocurrencies today in general. Great. So as we wrap up here, I just have a few questions, but I want to bring us back out of the weeds. You know, zoom out a bit and talk about Ample's next steps going forward. And one of them, obviously, is to be more integrated into the DeFi ecosystem. You've just talked about the goal of being more integrated in many of the lending platforms that we see today. Um, and a big part of that is composability, right? And your co-founder, Brandon, wrote an article about composability. I believe it must have been last month. And I want to highlight one sentence in that article, which says, if we want to rebuild the future of finance, we should first think about the functionality we want and use standards when needed as a tool to help us get there. Everything follows from utility. Uh, so we talked a lot about you know, Ample's utility, Ample's goals. What's your take on the current state of Ample's composability as we think about where Ample wants to be positioned within the decentralized uh, financial ecosystem going forward? I mean, I think... To Brandon's point, technically, uh, Ample meets the standards of an ERC-20 token. It is technically composable. Um, I think there are some folks who would prefer to assume that um, the quantity of tokens in, in a wallet isn't going to change without um, that being mediated by a, a transaction. And so it would break certain systems. Um, but again, uh, back to Brandon's point, these standards should follow right um, the universe that we want to build. Um, the standards should not determine the universe that we ultimately build. And I think ultimately, um, you know, 
it's to, in my mind a no-brainer that we should have a non-collateralized asset that could be used to denominate stable contracts and it's, it's very clear to me that more sophisticated financial instruments can be built on top of that with a minimum amount of oracle risk if systems are designed this way and you know maybe manny can talk a little bit about this because i know he's thought deeply about it from an almost higher level thinking about building on top of ample as a building block and i'd like to hear what he has to say as well yeah you might even say that i could or or could not be working on a project right now that works on that um (laughs) this is uh not to create too much hype uh but the Spill the beans with us. <laughs> um, well, I guess I can say a little bit now. Um, you know, over the past few months, starting sort of last year, I've been thinking about, you know, kind of protocols, very simple ones that create, you know, kind of financial instruments in this financial stack that really are, you know, kind of rebasing native and that really leverages, uh, you know, ample force kind of elastic supply. So I, I, I think ample is, is fully composable. I think a lot of protocols just did not take into account kind of what might be considered a corner case of rebasing supply, but I think it's perfectly allowable and they should definitely take that into consideration. I think what's really great is that you can build things that, you know, stratify risk, really separate the creation of debt and money from each other, right? And do not confuse something that is a debt like die for something that should be more like a money note, which should not carry kind of this yield or risk kind of component with it. And what's really great about Ample is that it allows you to build these contracts in a self-contained way without having to constantly reintegrate things like uh, oracles or kind of other connections to outside markets. You don't even have to create markets in the way that a lot of other products are doing. So the other thing that I think rebasing allows is is possibly the elimination of impermanent loss, I think, in, in a lot of the swapping algorithms that exist today. Um, but, you know, that's that's a topic for another day. I mean, this stuff can you can get pretty in the weeds for it. But I'll, I'll just sort of close out by saying that I, I think rebasing is a fantastic property. I think protocols that don't really take into account rebasing tokens are sort of missing out. And I think builders should consider this as it's like a special type of metal that you could use for a special type of purpose. If we can look past Ampleforth, past DeFi, past crypto in some respects, and we think about the future of banking, right? Especially if we think about financial inclusion, we think about all the people who are unbanked in the world and tie that to your mission of wanting to increase financial access and reach. If you were to build the perfect financial infrastructure for the unbanked, what would that look like? Well, first of all, I I think that the unbanked need banking not necessarily crypto. Um, so I would kind of follow Friedrich Hayek's lead and say that you know phase one would be opening up the free trade of money, uh, where phase two would be allowing the issuance of independent money that would kind of result in the fastest kind of solution to that problem of unbanked folks. I do think that the role of money is to create optionality, right? Um, it's, it, and I think that cryptocurrencies um, can do that uh, in concert with central bank monies, that they don't need to necess- necessarily replace one another. And I think that the optimal outcome might live 
with both systems coexisting rather than usurping one another entirely. I think I would agree with what Evan said, right? That what the unbanked really need is is banking. And um, I think financial access can be extended through kind of electronic money, but not necessarily crypto. The way that I think about crypto is really, you know, it's it's financial history in a petri dish, but functioning according to different principles of, of, of change, right? So it happens a lot faster and it happens differently. And the composability is a huge part of this, right? You know, evolution doesn't have composability and traditional finance doesn't have composability, but we can have that, I think, in DeFi. So I, I think that the what's really happening here in decentralized finances will have convergence ultimately to the financial instruments that we see in traditional finance, but they'll they'll be built up from much more kind of resilient and robust units. And I think that will make the system at a macro level behave differently. I think it's going to be much more healthy and you will not have kind of the buildup of systemic risk in the way that we sort of see today. Excellent. Well, on that note, Evan and Vanny, thank you so much for hopping on the Crypto Unstacked podcast today. I thought that was a fascinating conversation and I know our listeners will really enjoy our chat today. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks for having us, Leslie. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.